By 1402, the last two remaining superpowers were heading towards a monumental clash to determine who would hold the reins as the preeminent empire in the region. The Timurid Empire, led by Amir Timur, and the mighty Ottomans, led by Bayezid I, the Thunderbolt. In the years leading up to this point, their worlds had been filled with many distractions, other nations to busy themselves with. And over the years, Timur and Bayezid had conquered them all, both of these men being brilliant wartime commanders that had driven the adjoining kingdoms in their sphere of influence to their knees. What remained were few viable threats to the invincibility of their respective empires. And these two behemoths were now staring intently at each other. At first, slight discomfort, but still wary of one another due to their bordering lands in what today would be eastern Turkey in the Anatolian Peninsula. Then, falling into dispute regarding land claims and rulership over the smaller kingdoms that were situated between their vast territories. Envoys and communications began, quickly mutating into outright threats and insults between these two juggernauts. The following are just a few examples of the unsavory letters that passed from each leader to the other. In his first letter to Bayezid, Timur wrote, Be contented with that which Allah has given you, and with what you have seized from the unbelievers, but give up immediately those provinces which you have stolen from other rulers, so that Allah will be gracious to you. If not, then I will be the avenger with Allah's assistance. Bayezid thundered back, We will come and seek you out and pursue you as far as Tabriz and Sultania. Then we shall see whose favor heaven will declare and which of us will be raised to victory and which reduced to a shameful defeat. Thy armies are innumerable, be they so. But what are the arrows of the flying Tatar against the scimitars and battle axes of my invincible janissaries? Timur then countered, offering up a final ominous threat. Be wise, reflect, repent, and avert the thunder of our vengeance, which is suspended over thy head. Thou art no more than an ant. Why wilt thou seek to provoke the elephants? They will trample thee under their feet. Bayezid, not one to be deterred or intimidated, responded, Thou art no more than a brigand, a shedder of blood, who violated all that is sacred, broken pacts and obligations, with an eye turned from good to evil. If thou hast not the courage to meet me in the field, may thou again receive thy wives, after they have thrice endured the embraces of a stranger. There would be no further communications beyond this point. And really, nothing more to be said for now, with the inevitable future response to be offered up in person. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, 
Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people, those defined by the term warlord. Fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history, some with more lasting effects than others that were relatively short-lived, but certainly no less interesting. That said, when I select a particular warlord, I plan to of course review their lifetime and actions, but also take this further by looking at the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime. We'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it. And finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. But with the caveat, that I'm going to look beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser known subjects, such as the feature of this episode, part five, and the final episode covering Amir Timur, better known in the West as Tamerlane. Before jumping headlong into this episode, Episodes 1-4 to lay the groundwork of everything that we'll be covering during Timur's twilight years, so you might want to start there. But here's a quick summary of episode 4 to help you get up to date. In response to the invasion to the heart of his empire, led none other by Toktamish, Timur commences his War of Retribution, where he punishes Khorezm and Mughulistan in rapid succession. Before undertaking a risky and difficult, long march north deep into the Golden Horde lands to finally meet Toktamish at the Battle of the Kandurcha River in 1391. Timur then enters into Persia, adding new nations and cities to his growing domains, before being forced to move once again against the resurrected Toktamish, ending this threat for good through the Battle of the Tedik River and the following subjugation of the Golden Horde lands. Timur then orders a campaign into India, assaulting and conquering the city of Delhi, securing untold riches there. All of these actions not only winning him new lands and cities for his growing empire, but also sparking new enemies, including the Mameluk Sultanate in Egypt and Syria, and most importantly, the surging Ottoman Empire, beginning to clash with the Timurid Empire as the dominant superpower in that part of the world. When we last left things off, it was 1399, and after a short couple of months in Samarkand after his Indian campaign, Timur gathered his army and began the march westwards, making straight way to Sultania, the seat from which Miranshah ruled his territory who had started ruling rather erratically as a result of the mental health issues stemming from a fall from his horse a few years back, wherein he had struck his head rather severely. Upon reaching Sultania, Miranshah was acutely aware that his life was hanging in the balance, being son or no son to the great Timur. So when Timur summoned him, Miranshah begged forgiveness, asking for his father's mercy which ultimately he granted by sparing his life, but not before deposing him of his rule as punishment. 
Timur then led several expeditions north from Sultania into Georgia, aggressively quelling the rebellion that had risen as a result of Miran Shah's debauched rule. And while the Georgians obviously had reasonable cause to rebel, Timur would never allow any call to his authority and power to be put in question. While Timur was busy putting down the rebellion in Georgia, the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid sent his son, Prince Suleiman, to fight and defeat a regional ally of Timur, whose small kingdom had been blocking Ottoman expansion, and they took the city of Kamak and its surrounding territories in present-day eastern Turkey. In the spring of 1400, the 64-year-old Timur, still not showing any signs of slowing down, he immediately readied his army for an incursion into Ottoman territory as a response to his allies' loss. Timur's goal was the city of Sivas in central Turkey, 400 kilometers east of Ankara, which may have been the staging point for the Ottomans' recent attack and also an important merchant hub within the Ottoman Empire. Timur made straight for the city, only stopping to retake Kamak before continuing towards Sivas, with such speed that the Ottomans were unable to react with raising a sizable force in response. That August, the siege of Sivas began, with the city holding a mere 4,000 defending troops. And while Timur's army vastly outnumbered them, the city's fortifications were strong. Timur's engineers constructed siege equipment and began hurling boulders at the city walls. At the same time, prisoners were put to work digging underground, reaching under the city walls, setting up wooden supports and then setting them aflame, eventually causing the walls to crumble. This continued for weeks, reducing the city defenses to rubble. With no defenses to hold off the invading army, and no help coming on the horizon, the city's leaders surrendered and sued for peace. Timur accepted the surrender, provided that all the weaponry was brought to him and a hefty toll paid out in terms of plunder and slaves, promising in turn that no Ottoman blood would be spilt in the process. Once terms were met, Timur entered the city, but he still wasn't satisfied with the inconvenience of having to spend so much time to take the city. So, he proceeded to round up the remaining 3,000 unarmed Ottoman soldiers and bury them alive in a vast pit, technically keeping his promise and not spilling their blood. But he didn't continue on to destroy the city, instead taking it to act as a base of operations for subsequent invasions into the region. The Ottomans were now off balance, but far from finished something Timur would have known quite well, with all signs pointing to the eventuality of a monumental battle for supremacy. And while pressing the Ottomans now would have been a natural play, Timur did not continue to press inward to their lands. Why, you may be asking? Well, there were enemies at his back that had to be dealt with first. The young, 11-year-old Mameluk Sultan Faraj whose lands included Egypt, north through to the Levant or modern-day Syria, was a force to be reckoned with. Had Timur pushed further into the Ottoman lands, this would have left his supply lines extended precariously, 
also inviting an attack from the rear from the Mamluks. So, Timur decided to pivot from the Ottoman lands and preemptively take the fight to Faraj to prevent this, while also taking revenge for his deceased father's previous actions. As you may recall from episode 4, it was the Mamluk Sultan Barakuk who had killed Timur's ambassadors, established alliances against him, and was instrumental in the retaking of Baghdad away from Timur's hands. From Sivas, Timur led his army 500 kilometers due south, and by October was camped outside Aleppo. In the meanwhile, Sultan Faraj had called upon his generals to gather at Aleppo to make a concentrated stand against Timur. When Timur arrived at the city, the Mamluk army opened the gates and poured out into the field, determined to put down the invasion and spare the city from a siege. Interestingly, the Mamluks placed unmounted foot soldiers at the vanguard, which, in hindsight, was not a wise move, given the Tatars' expert arrow-slinging horsemen. And elephants the lumbering novelties that Timur had incorporated into his army after the Indian campaign. With the two armies standing at the ready, the Mamluk army charged at Timur's line. Timur commanded the elephants forward, wreaking havoc among the opposing line, crushing the opposing foot soldiers underfoot, backed by the horsemen unleashing deadly volleys of arrows. Sultan Faraj's army fought valiantly, but the overwhelming power of the elephant shock attack and horsemen caused the Mamluk army to buckle and fold in disarray. In particular, the Tatars' mobility being a key factor in yielding this victory. With their losses mounting in the face of this terrifying assault, the Mamluk general retreated back to the city. And as we've seen with the previous battles, as soon as a leader or general does this, a complete collapse soon follows, and this result was certainly no exception. The Tatars pursued the disorganized retreat with their custom brutality, cutting down the fleeing forces and decimating any chance of the Mamluks retaining enough numbers to allow for an effective defense of the city. This was helped, ironically, by the robust city defenses, moats and high walls, with few access points into the city which created a bottleneck to re-enter. Exacerbated by the disorganized and panicked retreat, soldiers trampling one another to get to the safety of the city, while Timur's horsemen on their heels peppered them with arrows. Aleppo's governor, upon seeing the meager forces that were actually able to make it back inside the city, understood that all was lost. So he made the decision to surrender the city and roll the dice on gaining mercy versus facing certain death with a direct assault. The surrender, while it did indeed spare his life, was a gamble that did not end well for Aleppo's inhabitants, as Timur again unleashed his men to ransack the city, extracting plunder and thousands of slaves, directing those back to Samarkand, while systematically butchering the remaining population and destroying buildings, leaving the trademark mountain of severed heads an estimated 20,000 victims. Timur followed this up with further incursions deeper into the Mameluk Empire, looking specifically to the city of Damascus. Clearly, 
Timur's vengeance wasn't yet played out, but it was due, at least in part, by strategy. Going further into the Mameluk territories and forcing another engagement would further sap at their power. Ultimately, clearing the path to take on the Ottomans without the threat of an army appearing on their rear, thereby avoiding a two-front war. As the winter of 1400 gave way to early 1401, Timur led his troops south from Aleppo on a 400-kilometer march to Damascus, also seizing towns and fortifications as they made their way to this ancient city, one of the largest and richest on the Mediterranean. By January 1401, Timur's army was encamped just outside of the city, ready to strike, but not yet commencing a siege or assault, because Timur was hoping for a diplomatic solution, with communications between him and Faraj negotiating to reach an amicable solution. And by negotiating, I mean Timur demanding that Faraj offer up tribute in the form of payments and acknowledgement of Timur being his overlord. While Faraj kept responses going, but not committing to a surrender as a stalling tactic. Under the veil, what was happening within the Mamluk Empire was that Faraj's position as a leader was tenuous, and quite sad really, because at this time he was just an 11-year-old child, and it was his advisors that were really in the background holding the strings, also with numerous entities attempting to replace him, being that his powerful father was no longer at the helm. And as you may recall, this was one of the primary reasons that Timur had set off so quickly westwards from Samarkand, only having recently returned from his conquest of Delhi. Timur correctly divined that the longer he left the Mameluk Empire unchecked, the longer that Faraj and his advisors would have to strengthen their hold on the Egyptian and Syrian lands. This would have ultimately allowed the Mamluks to offer up a much more united and substantial resistance, which had to be prevented. As negotiations continued on, Timur at one point was forced to send off a sizable portion of his horsemen north to find grazing lands to feed the massive number of horses that were vital to his war efforts. However, this reprieve also gave time for Faraj and his advisors at the head of a massive army to arrive at Damascus, growing the confidence of the city's governor and the forces stationed there. So much confidence, in fact, that the governor, without consulting Faraj, ordered a strike force to surprise Timur's troops that were encamped near the city. Timur's troops were caught by surprise, but they were seasoned warriors and battle-hardened. And while the impact stung, the damage was minimal, and the attack was deftly turned away. What it did, however, was raise Timur's anger and increased demands on Faraj, who in the meanwhile had sent Timur an envoy of apology, expressing that the attack was a result of the rogue actions of the governor and in no way supported by him. Timur was not satisfied by this and recalled his foraging detachments to return, amassing his terrifyingly capable army to make ready for an attack on the city. Of surprise, and much to Timur's delight and the city governor's dismay, was that under the cover of night, 
Faraj had packed up his army and led them back south to Cairo. This is because a usurper was attempting to wrestle Faraj's Egyptian power base away from him while he was abroad. Even if Faraj had managed to somehow win against Himur, his forces would have been reduced, and his army would not have been strong enough to retake his power base. This was a chance he would not take. Timur's delight at these turn of events did not put his irritation to rest, and what it meant was that the full weight of his rage and army was going to crash upon the city of Damascus. By this time, Timur's engineers were becoming particularly adept at waging siege warfare. His siege weapons began unleashing an unabating onslaught of fire and stone into the city and the walls, while sappers worked underground, weakening the fortifications from below. This continued around the clock, day and night, over the course of about four weeks. At length, the governor of Damascus, with no reinforcements or leaving army in sight, offered his surrender, begging forgiveness and agreeing unconditionally to any terms demanded by Timur. Massive payments were demanded and then quickly handed over to stave off Timur's wrath. However, considering how quickly that this was paid out, this drove Timur to demand even more. To the dismay of the governor, who attempted to argue his case, but then promptly and literally lost his head in the process. Timur then unleashed his troops into the city, plundering and slaughtering without remorse. Devastation that continued on for days, rendering enormous amounts of treasure and riches from this ancient city. Fires were also set ablaze, which effectively culminated into a firestorm that also ended up engulfing the renowned and beautiful Umayyad Mosque. The desolation to the city was utter and complete. With Damascus now under his thumb and no Mameluk armies in sight, Timur peeled off about 20,000 of his horsemen to go off and retake Baghdad, while the bulk of his forces remained in the region to continue picking away at the Mameluk domains. After a couple of months, Sultan Faraj was back in Cairo and had retained control of the region but was now awaiting the very real possibility of Timur following him south into Egypt. Instead, what he received were terms from Timur, offering peace, provided that Faraj vowed not to take any actions against Timur into the future or face the utter ruin of his kingdom. Faraj agreed wholeheartedly, and to his relief, Timur led his army north from Damascus out of the Mameluk lands. Timur began leading the bulk of his army to Karabakh in preparation of the invasion into the Ottoman Empire, an area that today includes modern-day eastern Armenia and southwestern Azerbaijan. While en route to his destination, reports came in from his troops tasked with the retaking of Baghdad that they had been able to make little progress. Not one to take such news with a wait-and-see attitude Timur immediately diverted his army with forced marches, making straight way to the city to take charge of the situation himself. Despite the recent changing of hands over the past couple of years, including under Timur's sway for a brief time, Baghdad remained a massive city with a large population, similar to Damascus, 
an ancient city that until recent times had long been a key Islamic center, the home of caliphs. Reunited with the 20,000 troops he had sent as a forward force, Timur intended on constricting the city into submission, his massive army of troops encircling the city, including an impromptu floating bridge constructed across the Tigris River to prevent aid and supplies making it into the city, while also preventing anyone from escaping. Siege weapons were then used to batter the walls while sappers weakened the walls from underneath with the defenders desperately working day and night to patch and repair the damage. This continued day in, day out, with Timur growing increasingly irritated that the city was unwilling to capitulate and offer up surrender. Almost two months into this daily cadence, Baghdad's defenses had been adequately weakened, and Timur had enough of waiting. Commanding an all-out assault, ladders being raised with the Tatars infiltrating at numerous points around the city. The defenders, to their credit, fought with vigor, and the initial assault proved costly to the attacking troops. But the tide soon turned, with the hungry and tired defenders unable to keep the unending Timurid waves at bay. Any semblance of organized resistance melted away in a confused mess, which Timur's army exploited turning it into a slaughter. As you can probably easily assume by now, what followed was the expected despoiling of the city, but on a level unlike anything Baghdad had experienced previously. In the end, Baghdad was left a smoking husk, with the grisly trademark of mountains of decapitated heads strewn throughout the city, reportedly amounting to 90,000 victims. As the winter of 1401 came on, Timur at length reached Karabakh to wait out the cold winter months, now satisfied that the path towards Bayezid and the Ottoman Empire was now clear, allowing him to focus his efforts on this worthy adversary, without fear of any others attacking from his rear, now that Baghdad, and more importantly, the Mamluk Empire had been brought to heel. In the spring of 1402, the 66-year-old Timur gathered his army, numbering approximately 140,000 troops, mainly consisting of horsemen and over 30 war elephants, and began making their way west from Karabakh into the Ottoman heartland, being met with very little opposition as they approached the city of Ankara. The reason why is because Sultan Bayezid, the Thunderbolt, now at the pinnacle of his power, was actually at that time in the midst of besieging Constantinople, with the Byzantine Empire in its death throes, surrounded on all sides by the surging Ottomans. Bayezid was crowned as Sultan in 1389 after the death of his father, Murad I. And through his years, this militaristic Ottoman leader built one of the largest and most effective armies in the known world at the time. From 1389 to 1395, he conquered Anatolia, Bulgaria, and then northern Greece, with his crowning achievement being the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396, routing an allied crusader army. Throughout the bulk of his rule, Bayezid was obsessed with taking Constantinople, laying siege to this lone remaining unconquered Roman city 
between 1394 to 1402, an eight-year period, at times interrupted due to the battles that I had mentioned, but then put off entirely when Timur invaded. Upon learning that Timur was approaching Ankara, Bayezid called off the siege of Constantinople, providing a stay of execution for the Byzantines, and began driving his 85,000 troops at a hard, hard pace through the Anatolian lands in the early summer heat, urgency driving his need to prevent Timur from taking this valuable Ottoman city and taking his realm right out from under his feet. In contrast, Timur took his time marching through the Ottoman lands, keeping his troops fresh and ready for Bayezid's inevitable response, knowing also that they were moving quickly and would be tired from the forced marches. Amazingly, Bayezid, through the frenzied pace, reached Ankara first and continued pressing eastwards, well aware that Timur's amassed troops lay ahead. Bayezid's advisors implored him to take up a defensive posture in the clearings east of the city, pointing to the exhaustion of his troops. However, he disagreed, compelling his army forward, being that Timur's army was making its way through a heavily forested region and meeting them there, offering battle in that place would be extremely advantageous as it would limit the effectiveness and mobility of Timur's cavalry. The Ottomans pressed on with more forced marches, Bayezid scouts ahead of the bulk of the army trying to nail down exactly where Timur was situated. Under the cover of these heavily forested areas, Timur's scouts reported back that Bayezid was marching straight towards them. So Timur sent out small detachments to show some activity in the area, but instead ordered the bulk of his army to immediately veer southwest, while the Ottoman army continued their eastwards march, and were now to the north of Timur's position and passing them by. In a master stroke of tactical positioning, this movement cleared the path for Timur to then direct his horsemen northwest, coming up behind the Ottomans, and in fact, taking up the advantageous grounds that Bayezid had previously occupied when his advisors had suggested for a strong defensive position. To make things worse for the outmaneuvered Ottomans, while Timur's troops were resting and awaiting the return of Bayezid, Timur then ordered that the water sources in the area be diverted so the Ottoman troops would be forced into making an attack. Otherwise, dehydration would wreak havoc and do the job of destroying them under the tremendous heat of the Anatolian summer. On July 20th, Bayezid's tired and thirsty troops finally arrived in the area, the two massive armies finally facing each other across the Subuk plain, just northeast of Ankara. Timur's 140,000 troops consisted primarily of Tatar cavalry, along with over 30 war elephants. His sons Shah Rukh and the rehabilitated Miran Shah commanding the left and right wings respectively, while his grandson and appointed successor, Mohammed Sultan, commanded the main body of the army in the center. Opposite to them, the 85,000 strong Ottomans were tired and lacking in water, but fielded a rather capable and seasoned army that in recent years had never known defeat. Although it must have been disheartening for them to have been outmaneuvered so readily, 
and we cannot underestimate the morale drain of not having access to adequate water sources. Bayezid himself commanded the center, made up of archers, the renowned Janissaries, and Sipahi cavalry. His right wing was led by his son Suleiman, consisting of Anatolian cavalry bolstered by a force of approximately 18,000 Tatar cavalry mercenaries. While the left wing was under the command of Stefan Lazarevich, his Christian Serbian vassal, who led a mass of heavily armored, black-plated cavalry, Bayezid kicked off the battle, urging his army forward in a crescent formation, with both wings moving forward to engage Timur's wings with initial charges. Lazarevich and his heavily armored horsemen charged into Timur's right wing. The heavy black plate armor proved to be an effective deterrent against the Timurid arrows, and they saw some initial successes, following up with charge after charge and pushing Timur's right wing back. However, the exhaustion and terrible thirst were taking their toll, and the initial successes grounded into a stalemate, with Miran Shah stabilizing his retinue with effective counters, neither side really being able to make further inroads. Of note was the unabashed admiration that Timur later voiced of Lazarevich and the bravery of his men that fought like lions. In the meanwhile, on the Ottoman right, Prince Suleiman led his blend of Anatolian Tatar cavalry forward, and just as his force was about to charge into Sharuk and the Timurid left wing, dismay and confusion was triggered within his troops. As the Tatar mercenaries turned on their supposed Anatolian allies and began attacking them, just as Timur's horsemen slammed into them as well. What Bayezid and Suleiman could not have known was that the cunning Timur, always looking for an edge to stack the deck in his favor, and like he had done against Toktamish at the Battle of the Terik River in episode 4, had bought the loyalty of the Tatars who then joined the battle against the Ottomans. By this time, the two center bodies had met in battle as well, as Timur had ordered this to keep Bayezid's strong center occupied so they couldn't intervene on the quickly weakening wing where the trap had been sprung. Timur's left wing, bolstered by the newly flipped Tatar contingent, began decimating the Anatolian cavalry, threatening a complete collapse and the loss of Prince Suleiman. Seeing this unfolding, Bayezid ordered Lazarevich to remove himself and a large number of his heavy horse from the opposite wing and reinforce the desperate situation surrounding Suleiman. As a result, Timur's right managed to gain momentum against their opposing Ottoman detachment, now reduced numerically, and crushed them to a man. And by the time Lazarevich reached Suleiman's dire situation, this left wing was clearly almost lost. However, to his credit, the Serbian vassal still smashed into Timur's horsemen. Despite the heavy losses sustained, he managed to reach the prince and break him out of the encirclement to escape the battlefield. What was left of the Ottomans was Bayezid himself with his Janissaries and Sipahi cavalry who had been pushed back by Timur's center assault. With both wings compromised, Bayezid soon found himself encircled yet he was determined to fight on, having found a small hill to station his remaining troops. The battle ensued for hours. 
but by that time the outcome was inevitable, as Timur's troops continued to whittle away at the remaining Ottoman army. Bayezid was also aware that the end was in sight, with no chance of turning the tide. So he, along with about a hundred of his Sipahi cavalry, managed to charge out of the melee and break through the Timurid encirclement, attempting to escape into the rolling hills of the countryside. Timur sent a couple of thousand of his cavalry in pursuit, and after a short time was able to get to Bayezid, the nail in the coffin being an arrow that took out his horse from under him, rendering Bayezid injured, and as the first and only Ottoman Sultan to be captured alive and imprisoned. Finally meeting in person, and with the opportunity to have the final say coming out of their previous sour exchanges that we had covered at the top end of this episode, when the injured Bayezid was brought before Timur, the great emir reportedly laughed, not necessarily at the expense of his defeated foe, well, maybe at least partially, but almost as if in jest to unlikely outcomes, saying something to the effect of, it is clear then that fate does not value power and possession of vast lands if it distributes them to cripples, to you the crooked, and to me the lame. As a side note, Bayezid would months later die while in captivity as a result of his injuries sustained in battle. This led to a period of crisis called the Ottoman Interregnum, an 11-year span of time wherein Bayezid's sons and several others vying for power resulted in civil wars that almost spelled an end to the Ottoman Empire. Also, it's disputed whether Bayezid was mistreated while in captivity, as some accounts from Timur's court lend to the notion that Timur in fact held Bayezid in high esteem, impressed by his achievements, and that he even mourned his death. The other interesting byproduct of this event is that Timur gained a great deal of acclaim among European monarchs due to his defeat of the Ottomans, preventing them from making further inroads into Europe, alluding to the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Following this famous victory, the Ottomans were in disarray, which allowed Timur to easily take his massive army, moving westwards through Anatolia, plundering cities and the countryside at will, siphoning more plunder and slaves and sending them back to Transoxiana. This meandering march west did have an endpoint, with Timur setting his sights on the castle of Smyrna, not for any grand strategic purposes, but more so from a symbolic or religious perspective with designs again on affirming his status as the Sword of Islam, being that Smyrna was the last Christian-held outpost in Anatolia since having been captured by a crusade in 1344. Smyrna was an imposing castle on the western coast of Anatolia, and although only manned by about 200 knights, up to the point that Timur came into the region, the Knights Hospitaller had managed to keep it out of Ottoman hands for over 150 years, despite several attempts to take it by numerically superior enemies. This castle was not only difficult to access, but during the 150 years of occupation, papal money and resources were poured into the defensive structures, making for an impressive sight. As Timur approached the stronghold, Envoys were sent to the hospitalers demanding that they convert to Islam 
which, as expected, was met with an emphatic no. Timur arrived at Smyrna in early December 1402 and immediately commanded the siege weapons to begin an almost constant bombardment of the fortifications while filling in the massive moat surrounding the castle. In just two weeks into this furious bombardment, Smyrna's walls and defenses were reduced to rubble. After a brief battle, Smyrna was taken and then, as expected given his previous actions, Timur had the castle decimated, celebrating his victory over the Christian occupiers, which further entrenched his status as the executor of a divine will. As 1402 gave way to the new year, Timur, having scoured Anatolia of its riches and slaves, began to lead his troops back east, back to Samarkand, in order to start making preparations for his next intended conquest, now pointing towards China. So you might be wondering, what? China? Why now? Firstly, Beyond the obvious notion that there were no more viable threats to the Timurid Empire west of Samarkand, with the Mamluks and Ottomans now dealt with, Timur was now unoccupied and free to expand his realm elsewhere. But there were more fundamental reasons. By 1368, Chinese forces under the Emperor Hongbu, founder of the Ming Dynasty, had driven the Mongols out of China. As a consequence, many Central Asian countries evolved into vassal states, regularly offering up tribute to keep Hongwu at bay. And these successes sparked a more brazen foreign affairs approach, with Hongwu eventually reaching out to Timur, his ambassadors addressing Timur as a subject, to which Timur had responded in a scathing fashion. This scenario reoccurring several times over, before Timur, being fed up, announced his hostile intentions as to how this master and subject configuration was really going to work. Though in past years, Timur had never made it a secret that he eventually planned to invade in pursuit of the reinstatement of Mongol rule in China. And time was running out for Timur. He was feeling his age and realized that he didn't have many years left. At 67, he was at a rather ancient age for the time, given that the average life expectancy was around 40 to 45. The march east back to Transoxiana, however, was initially slowed due to the worsening condition of his grandson and successor to the Timurid Empire, Muhammad Sultan, whose prowess in the battlefield had been celebrated, but who had also received serious wounds during the Battle of Ankara that never fully healed and left him in a weakened state in the months following that event. Sadly, the 20-year-old Muhammad Sultan succumbed to his injuries and died, which hit the elderly Timur particularly hard and also, most importantly, left the empire without a destined heir, with Timur not taking steps to identify a replacement. In early 1404, Timur returned to Samarkand to uproarious festivities. Despite the loss of his heir, there was much to celebrate, given the feats that had been accomplished during the five-year campaign, with both the Mamluks and Ottomans brought to heel. Banquets and celebrations filled the initial months, 
interspersed with Timur traveling about Transoxiana to view the progress of the monumental building projects that he had commissioned, all bankrolled by his conquests and built by the slaves he had captured. While in the background, Timur was tirelessly working behind the scenes, preparing for his next epic undertaking against the Ming Emperor in China. His intelligence network and spies bringing him almost daily reports of the opposing troop strength and activities in the region, while others were busy securing secret alliances with regional players. And all in all, Timur was also in the process of lining up the biggest Timurid army to date, well over 200,000 horsemen. All of this amazing really, given that the 68-year-old Timur was truly feeling his age. Hunched over and half-blind, he now had to be carried in an ornate litter because his strength was failing, although his mind was seemingly as sharp as ever. What a scary prospect this must have been for any kingdom that he set his sights on. Strategically and tactically brilliant, and now with the added experience and wisdom of countless battles under his belt, but also devastatingly cruel and calculatingly cold when it served his purpose. Towards late 1404, preparations for the Chinese invasion were nearing completion, and Timur's vast army encamped kilometers wide in the lands around Samarkand. In order to build excitement for their next conquest, Timur held a kurultai, a two-month celebratory and alcohol-infused feast wherein each commander, down to the lowliest soldier, participated, bellowing as to their battlefield prowess and imagining the plunder to be had in the upcoming escapade. This group had never known defeat, and confidence was riding high. Now, as mentioned a number of times throughout this story, December was certainly far from the ideal time to commence a campaign. However, his health was gradually worsening, creating an urgency to move forward. Despite being immersed in the brutal steppe winter, Timur ordered his army to commence their march northeast towards China. Progress was extremely slow, bitter cold and snowdrifts up to the torso of their horses, making for a very difficult march. And the toll on the 68-year-old Timur was apparent, and he fell ill. Just as they arrived at Otrar, in modern-day southern Kazakhstan. This was supposed to be a short reprieve from the harsh winter, but Timur's weakening condition made further travel impossible. He became bedridden and in his weakened state, began making decisions regarding his succession for his vast empire. Most importantly, naming his grandson, Pir Muhammad, as heir. Then, on February 18, 1405, the great emir, the former bandit, fugitive, prisoner, conqueror, and sword of Islam, succumbed to his illness and died. His children, grandchildren, wives, army, and it is said that all of Transoxiana fell into a deep state of mourning, realizing that having such a person at the helm of their empire was indeed a rarity. Granted, those in the surrounding kingdoms, particularly China, must have released a great sigh in relief. After Timur died, his body was 
embalmed with musk and rose water. It was wrapped in linen, laid to rest in an ebony coffin, and sent back to Samarkand. His mausoleum and tomb, the Gur-i-Amir, ornate and spectacularly detailed both inside and out, still stands in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. In the immediate aftermath of Timur's death, the planned assault on China was put off, largely due to infighting. Pir Muhammad, installed as heir so late in the game, was unable to gain sufficient support from his relatives, and a bitter civil war erupted among Timur's descendants, with multiple princes pursuing their claims. It wasn't until 1409 that Timur's youngest son, Shah Rukh, was able to overcome his rivals and take the throne as Timur's successor. And he did a pretty admirable job of ruling the Timurid Empire for about 40 years until his death in 1447. This was followed by his son, Ulu Beg, who only ruled for two years, but is celebrated for other things, being an astronomer and mathematician of some note. In the end, however, the Timurid Empire fell apart relatively quickly after his death, officially dissolved in 1507, just over 100 years after his death. So why is this? There were many factors playing a part, but let's boil it down to three main reasons, which led to infighting and factionalism without someone strong to unify and provide an outward focus. And come to think of it, this is actually quite similar to how the Ilkhanate had devolved into a mess of smaller factionalized states squabbling for power as we discovered back in episode 3. Firstly, Timur's unwillingness to develop and establish a strong succession plan. Pir Muhammad was selected way too late and without adequate support. His appointment at the 11th hour, without Timur's prior enforcement of this notion, left it open to interpretation to others that had also been vying for the leadership position. Secondly, the Timurid Empire was built with the necessity of Timur himself at the helm. As the empire grew, in addition to vassal kingdoms owing their allegiance to Timur and Timur alone, he also appointed his sons and grandsons to governorships in regions across the empire, all answering to none other than Timur himself. Thirdly, one cannot discount the toll that his cruel actions had on the cities that he conquered, plundered, enslaving and brutally massacring the inhabitants. These horrific acts, while keeping the regions bound to his rule in fear under the short term, would have obviously done little to endear or endure Timurid rule into the future. Revenge and rebellion would have been on their mind with a revolt soon following when the opportunity presented itself. After his death in 1405, all these factors resulted in the family quickly falling into disputes and civil wars, and many of the governorships becoming effectively independent. However, these Timurid rulers did continue to dominate the lands that Timur had collected over the years though the Anatolian Caucasus territories were lost by the 1430s, roughly. Despite the fall of the Timurid Empire by 1507, Timur's dynasty did not entirely end, with some of his descendants reaching rather impressive heights in new lands. 
particularly another notable warlord called Babur, a descendant of Timur through his father, who founded the Mughal Empire in India in 1526, not to be confused with the Mughal Khanate that Timur had warred with repeatedly. By the 17th century, the Mughal Empire ruled most of India, but eventually declined during the following century. The Timurid dynasty finally coming to an end when the rule of the Mughals was abolished by the British Empire in 1857. Here's some last parting thoughts on Timur's legacy. When he was born, it hadn't been long ago that Genghis Khan had reigned with Mongol dominance. So, being raised on these stories and the conquests of these ancestral steppe dwellers, the restoration of the Mongol Empire was certainly something he was trying to emulate. Well, perhaps in part, because some of the motivations for his warring ways was clearly set on leaving his lasting mark on history, placing great emphasis on making his homeland of Transoxiana and its principal cities, namely Samarkand, Kesh, and Bukhara, as glorious as possible, constructing wondrous buildings to demonstrate its power while reducing other places to rubble. Understanding that, Timur's legacy is certainly a mixed one. While Central Asia blossomed under his reign, he's vilified in other places such as Baghdad, Damascus, Delhi, and Georgia, just to name a few, for obvious reasons, having horrifically sacked these cities while massacring and enslaving the populations. And he virtually exterminated Christianity in Persia. The Church of the East, which had previously been a major branch of Christianity, but afterwards with only small remnants remaining. And there's no doubt that he had a brilliant strategic mind in warfare, but also politically, showing sharp intelligence to read and exploit these situations to his benefit, such as through dividing enemies so that they were unable to form a unified resistance. On the other hand, it's hard to deny that he could also be exceedingly cruel. Although, strategic cruelty was not an uncommon tool used by other leaders at the time. Granted, the scale of Timur's actions certainly stand out. And lastly, Timur in 1991 was officially recognized as a national hero in Uzbekistan when they gained independence from the Soviet Union with numerous statues and monuments raised up in his honor, used to help carve out their national identity for the country, focusing on his attributes as a devout Muslim possessing great intelligence with the ability to unify and lead with strength and transform Transoxiana into a beacon of trade, culture, and learning. But just when you think Timur's story is over, he reached out of his grave to make his presence felt over 500 years later in World War II. World War II, you ask? But didn't he die in 1405? And yes, definitely, you would be correct. But this story is certainly the stuff of legend, so compelling that I had to include it. On June 19, 1941, Soviet archaeologists exhumed Timur's body from his tomb. Through their examination, they determined that Timur was a tall and broad-chested man, estimating his height at 5 foot 8, 
which would have been tall for his era. In keeping with the historical accounts, they also found that he had a withered right hand and that his right thigh bone had knitted together with his kneecap, which would have forced his leg to be bent at all times, and he would have walked with a definitive limp. What makes this story particularly interesting is that they found two inscriptions on his tomb. On the outside, stating, When I rise from the dead, the world shall tremble. While another inscription on the inside stated, Whomsoever opens my tomb shall unleash an invader more terrible than I. Three days after his exhumation, as prophesied by Timur from beyond the grave, Hitler then launched Operation Barbarossa, the largest military invasion of all time upon the Soviet Union. Then, when Timur was reburied, in keeping with Islamic rituals in November 1942, this was just before the Soviet victory at the Battle of Stalingrad in early 1943. Now that we have finished with Timur, I am super excited to be moving on to the next prolific warlord. In the next episode, we'll be traveling back in time to roughly 150 BC to the Iberian Peninsula in modern-day Portugal and Spain, uncovering the story of Variathus, also known as Viriato, who waged the War of Fire against the Roman Empire, who by this time had become the dominant superpower in the Mediterranean, fresh off their recent defeat of Carthage in the Second Punic War. As the Romans inevitably go about conquering the peninsula, Variathus comes out of nowhere to lead the Lusitani tribe in a war of resistance against the power-hungry Romans and their treacherous regional leaders, handing the Romans loss after loss through cunning tactics and clever ambushes defined by guerrilla warfare. And much, much more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. I would certainly appreciate a five-star rating if you found this episode informative or entertaining. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps, pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions on future warlords that you think I should do an episode on. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com. <laughs>